Hi, welcome to Season 2 of the Silverline Podcast, an audio version of our video streams that we hold weekly. They're edited a little bit to make them a little more concise. My name is Roland Mann. I'm the head honcho at Silverline, and we have a great time making fun comics that we think that you'll enjoy. So thank you for listening, and maybe go check out some of our comics if you haven't already. In this episode, the Wemmers talk with special guest Aaron the Presty. It originally aired February 17th, 2021. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Silverline Wednesday Night Wham! Hosted by Scott Wakefield! Hello, Internet! We are Silverline and it is Wednesday and you are right where you should be, right here with us. Thank you for joining us. We have a full crowd tonight and we're not even all here to the wednesday whammers some There's folks more coming couldn't make it hopefully they'll be able to join us and we have a very special guest uh mr aaron lapresti is here with us tonight we will get to him in just a moment he has run away we frightened him already no, I, I gotta get some i'm like living in shadow here it's like, yeah. Yeah. turn the lights on turn the lights on aaron you need the you need the clear visor, the clear card dealer visor. <laughs> oh, this, it got really bright. <laughs> oh, <laughs> seriously, folks. <laughs> hey, yes, we we that's that's a great line for our show. Seriously, folks. Okay, all right. Let's let's rein it in. Aaron is the topic tonight. We're going to talk about uh, his career and what he's created, and we'll go all around um, and and talk about art forms and and uh, the the what goes into the craft and um and, and any other silliness that comes up during the show so all right well um my name is aaron lapresti i am a penciler inker writer colorist occasional painter uh worked in the industry since uh about 92 91 maybe um i was just thinking before i came on that i've actually been uh making a living drawing since 1990 i started out in commercial art was there for a couple years in a studio here in portland oregon and uh while i was trying to break into comics um i got a little bit of a late start uh because i went to film school at usc i was kind of wanted to pursue that and that didn't work out um at least as quickly as i wanted it to so i bailed and said you know what i'm gonna get i'm gonna try and get back into comics which was my original goal when i was 12 so um, I eventually was able to do that. I've worked on a variety of projects for a variety of publishers, probably best known for my work on Planet Hulk, uh, Wonder Woman. I had a run on Ms. Marvel, Justice League International. Um, I've worked for, I started, off, I started off at Marvel, but then jumped ship to go to Malibu with uh, Roland and crew because uh, they offered me twice the page rate that uh, Marvel was at the time. <laughs> so I was like, wow. yeah, I'll do that. And sorry, my there dog. Was a is lot of money in those days in comics, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I was just having this conversation with some people that I think our original page rate was, or mine was like $85, right? A page. Mm-hmm. And um, then you guys came along, Dave and uh, Dave Ulbrich and um, Tom Mason talked to me at a dragon con yeah and i happened to be sitting next to mark bagley because i had done a like spider-man's origin story in the uh that three uh 365 the black 
uh, hologram covers mm -hmm. because she was Spider-Man. And so I was sitting next to Bagley and of course, you know, he had a, a line a mile long and I was just kind of catching a little overflow. My dog is literally biting the sleeve of my um and uh dave and tom came up and started talking to me and told me what they were doing and i had no idea about what you know the characters or anything that they were working on and um but as we as they they sent me the the package of material the different designs and things like that and you know said yeah we'll, we'll pay 135 dollars a page i was like what <laughs> okay um so I, uh, and I didn't really have anything going over at Marvel. I had been offered uh, She-Hulk, but then uh, by an editor uh, who was working there, but then John Romita Sr., who was the art director, came in and said, no, nah, he's not ready for a regular series. So I kind of got pulled out from underneath me and he was right. But at the time, I didn't think so, right? right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was very eager to, um, to go someplace else where uh, people had a little bit of faith in me. And I was able to sort of by working on Sludge, which wasn't originally what I was supposed to be working on. I was supposed to be working on um, Hard Case, yeah, because that was one of the launch books for them. And then, but I, at a, we were at um, Fred Greenberg's New York show there in the Javits Center a couple of years before he, you know, the snowstorm that that bankrupted him. But and they had their whole book full of character designs. And then there was a Kevin Nolan piece in there from you know, he had designed for Sludge. And I was. I remember talking to, um, uh, who was it? Um, Chris Holm, I guess. I'm like, dude, this is what I want to do. And he's like, no, we need you to launch, you know, in a hard case. I'm like, I really want to do this. And so he finally relented and gave that to me and they found someone else to do hard case. But um, the interesting thing was when I was working at Marvel doing these backups and things early in my career, I was, I was under so much pressure. I felt like, if I screwed this up, it'd be, it was it, you know? So it was like every job was like so important. And yet I didn't really have a clear understanding of what they wanted from me. So I was really, some of the work, some of the worst work I've ever done. Now granted, it was some of the first work I ever did too. So that makes sense. But it, I, 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 I got fired twice from Marvel and then I did new samples and they showed them to them. They're like, okay, that this is more like it, you know? And then I would get the actual job and then I would just suck because it was just the pressure was just immense. And so when I went over to um, Malibu, all the guys were just kind of like, yeah, man, do what you do. And so it totally took the pressure off me. And I, at that time on Sludge, just started doing some really interesting things in storytelling. And it was the first real professional looking work I had done up to that point and um, sort of changed the uh, trajectory of my career. And uh, so I was, I've always been grateful to you guys for giving me that opportunity and as well as just, and, and then sort of getting out of my way and saying, hey man, go for it. Yeah. And so it was very liberating and it really helped me out a lot in terms of uh, getting better and establishing my career in the industry. Um, but yeah, so Malibu, I did a short term at uh, CrossGen uh, done some image stuff, DC, obviously I've been at DC for the last darn near 10 years and uh but i haven't really done anything for them since september because of the craziness going over there you know it's we're all kind of sitting yeah. around watching them implode and assuming that marvel's not far behind you're, um, you're, you're one of the ones on the list that's gonna buy them right there's you know there's i'm one of the fans with the yeah, yeah i got, I yeah, got a ton uh -huh. of money off my yeah. royalties that i saved <laughs> uh -huh. uh -huh. 
thought you'd so, get in line. <laughs> yeah. So actually, the last few months, I've been doing a ton of commissions, selling original artwork, and uh, doing some covers for some of the smaller, you know, independent companies like uh, Dynamite and um, Aftershock and uh, Archie, which I guess Archie isn't really a small company, but um, and doing some stuff like that, but and trying to get my own stuff going. So uh, it's been it's been quite a wild ride, actually. But um, I've had this isn't the first time I've had an ex, you know a few months where I haven't had any work from the big two. It's happened to me a couple times um, in the past, and you just kind of you know when you're a freelancer, you just kind of ride out the storm, and stuff eventually pops up. So kind of roll with it. Um, so, yeah. so I'm going to ask. I'm going to jump in and ask the first question. What is okay. the status of uh, Garbage Man? Um, you know, it's it's an interesting. It's interesting that you asked me that. The um, I do have a deal. It is coming out later this year. But the publisher was like, "I yeah, don't talk about it until we solicit it." And I'm like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life." I keep talking about yourself, it constantly, right? so that when you do solicit it, people right. know that it's coming. So I've been sort of cheating. I've been talking about it, but I haven't been saying who's publishing it. I gotcha. <laughs> so it's, I had to, I, ha, I had to go back in. For those who don't know, I was a, it was a miniseries, two miniseries actually that I did for um, DC Comics, but it was a creator-owned book. And recently the rights returned to me, well, probably two years ago now. Um, and it, it has Batman in it. So I've had to remove Batman and put my own characters in there to replace Batman. Thankfully, I have uh, some characters that kind of fit really nicely into that mold. So it, it wasn't this jarring thing that I took Batman out and put these characters in. But so that's what I've been doing this, this past fall as well is getting that, the pages that needed to be redrawn, um, the panels that needed to be redrawn so that, you know, Batman was removed and all references to Gotham and all that kind of stuff. And it's not in there a ton, but there's enough. There's, I think there was, ended up being out of 115 pages of story, there was, I think, 18 separate pages that either had word balloon changes or art changes on them. So I got those repenciled. I got those sent to Matt Ryan, who is the anchor on it, and who I've worked mostly with most of my career the last, anyway, since my cross-gen days. And so he's inked them. I got him to the colorist. They're colored, and just a couple days ago, they got lettered. So everything is over at the publishers, and now it's just kind of a matter of waiting for them to solicit it so that I can officially talk about it. But it will be out <laughs> later this year, like either October or November, a trade paperback that nice. collects the whole thing. But the nice thing, the interesting thing about it is it actually has new material in it as well. So it's a reprint of the stuff that came out with the new material in it, so... And, it, and it's all 100% yours now, right? Yes, Excellent. that is correct. I have a quick question for you, Aaron, on that. Yes, um, I was reading on your website about uh, Garbage Man, and I want to get a little bit into the conceptual part of it. You know, um, what I found interesting was you stated you wanted to do a monster as a superhero rather than what Alan Moore had done with Swamp Thing, which was turned it into sort of this esoteric, you know swamp god type thing and i thought that was interesting that you wanted to do a monster as a superhero because you had this cool iconic cover and it reminded me of creature from the black lagoon right and because i'm an old i'm a classic universal 
Monsters fan also. And yeah. And so it, <laughs> it sort of took me back to that. And I was like, I got to find out like what, what got you going? Was it a swamp thing kind of inspiration? Was it a creature inspiration? How did he come about? Well, uh, most people that are familiar with me are familiar with my work know that I'm a big, you know, Bernie Wrights and honk. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny how you don't really see his influence in my work until I start doing monster stuff and then it becomes clear as day. You know, it's just, you, you know, I do superhero stuff and it's like, you wouldn't, you're going to see more probably Neil Adams and you're going to see mm. Bernie Wrights and in my stuff, but you look at my monster stuff and you go, well, I can see the rights and influence there, 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 there. It's pretty obvious. Um, what happened was I, when I first went over to DC, I had, well, I was at Marvel and I, I had done Planet Hulk and I was doing Ms. Marvel and I just wrapped up Ms. Marvel and I was supposed to take over Ultimate X-Men. And um, I told them I wouldn't do it unless they gave me the cover gig because I had, um, I had not done the covers on Ms. Marvel and it was really ticked me off. And so they said, well, we don't know, uh, you know, can you do a sample? And so I said, yeah. And I, I got through the halfway through the sample and I said, what am I doing? I was so, I got so pissed at myself and then I got <laughs> pissed at them. I finished the sample. I sent it to them. They go, this is great. You can do cover. I said, now nah, I'm quitting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I did. And, um, but I had, I had a, also had a man thing project over there that I was pitching them. And it was just, it would have been, pardon the expression, just a one issue giant size man thing. And uh, they, <laughs> they were like, yeah, they were like, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. But they, they just kept putting it off, you know, so I never got around. So I got, you know, there was a couple things going on there. But anyway, so when I went over to, and was talking to Dan Adio, um, I said, look, one of the things I want to do is write. I said, not all the time. I don't want to write every project I'm on, but I do want the opportunity to do that once in a while. And he goes, ah, I don't care. That's fine. And so we were talking a little bit more and he goes, you know, I kind of, we need a monster book because at the time Swamp Thing was being held captive by Vertigo, okay? And this is something I never really understood. You know, they're the same company, but they're not the same company. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> yeah. it was like, they had, you know, they had the rights to Swamp Thing and they wouldn't give it back to DC for the use in the regular DCU at the time. So, and Dan really wants, I mean, we, DC doesn't have a Hulk character. They don't really have a monster character other than Swamp Thing. And they didn't even have Swamp Thing at the time. So I said, well, Dan, that's right up my alley. Let me come up with something. And my feeling was, I was a big Swamp Thing fan, you know, as a kid. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a big horror fan. Okay, so I won't go and see just like disgusting horror films. But right, I do right. love monster movies. And Same I here. The, universal, the monster films, like you know, like you were talking about, those to me are not horror films; they're monster films. Mm. You know, I guess vampire films could get a little bit into what you consider a horror film, but you know, Wolfman and you know, mm -hmm. Creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein; those are monster films to me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I, I wanted to do. This, you know, Alan Moore got into you know some weird, esoteric, creepy stuff, and other people have done some really disgusting things with, you know, the character, and it just gets, you know, it just not very appealing to me but i always like what wrightson did you know i was like oh this he fights a monster this month next month he fights a werewolf after that the alien shows up you know and him and len mm -hmm. ween were mm -hmm. to me that was kind of like you've got the, the the monster is the protagonist he is the superhero i mean mm -hmm. he's stronger than everybody else he's built like a superhero he just 
deals with monsters as opposed to supervillains. And so that was kind of the take I wanted. I wanted to do something classic without reinventing the wheel, but at the same time, not make, I wanted to make it familiar, but not a ripoff. And right. so I kind of took, you know, uh, I don't know if you'd call it standard, but a basic origin story where somebody gets injected with chemicals and there's an explosion and they reform and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Obviously yeah. who the guy was is different than, you know, the other characters that were turned into swamp creatures. Um, so that part of the story is different, but the actual creation of the character, I just wanted people to be able to kind of step right in and go, hey, we don't have a swamp thing, but we have garbage, man. Let's read that. <laughs> and so that was kind of the inspiration behind doing it. And originally it was going to be its own series. And then Dan chickened out and he goes, well, let's make it a mini series. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then he chickened out and said, well, why don't we run it as a backup in the Batman books? And I thought, well, you know what? That's a great idea because I'll get great exposure, right? Mm. And then that changed. And he goes, okay, well now, and it came, ended up being the worst possible scenario. We're going to run it at, in an anthology miniseries. I'm like, I don't no. know if that's a real thing. You know, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And so then they took, they had, um, uh, for those of you that are as old as me or close to as old as me, remember, uh, DC had a series called Weird Worlds back in the early 70s that were all Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff, right? Well, they had to they had to re-up the copyright on that title. So he's going, okay, well, we'll do the first miniseries will be Weird Worlds. I'm like, whatever. And so then, and then we'll do a second miniseries and the, it was My Greatest Adventure, right? So they wanted to get My Greatest Adventure back out there. So I had a story in there. Uh, Kevin McGuire had a story on this alien a uh, girl that was sort of sort of superhero humorous kind of thing uh, that was really quite good and, and um, called Tanga. And then they ran a Lobo story. So we basically, all of us had 10 pages and that went through six issues, that six issue miniseries, Weird Worlds. Then they, so we all ended our stories on these cliffhangers, except for Lobo that wrapped up. But Kevin and I ended our, you know, because every 10 page segment had to kind of like leave you hanging to like Marvel Comics Presents or whatever it used to be yeah. like. And so then we finish it, the Weird Worlds thing, we're ready to jump into the next issue. And he's like, well, he goes, we're, we're doing My Greatest Adventure, but it's not gonna come out for another four months. And so we had these cliffhangers that were, you know, 60 pages that we'd built through the six issues. And then we got this cliffhanger and now we gotta wait four months before the next issue comes out. Uh, of course, by the time it did, everybody had forgotten about it, you know, and sales were horrible and blah, blah, blah. But that was sort of, that's how that all came about. You know, you're making the case for independent comics. You just, that, 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 that was yeah, it that's right it. there. Everybody, yeah. everybody's listening. Yes. Why you do independent. Yes. on your schedule. And for the record, and for the record, last thing I'll say about this. So other people, but I love your bright, your clean superhero stuff. That's much more Adam Hughes-ish, right? Beautiful work. But I love the grit. And I love the textures of the Bernie Wrightson-esque stuff, you know, where, you, where you're more on the, on the Kelly Jones end of the spectrum and it gets all weird and it doesn't have to be so bound to re real reference because I'm always in that tug of war between, okay, here's my photo reference, but I, I want it to have a, you know, an atmosphere, a feel to it. I want it to have guts, you know, and I don't want to just draw pure reference, you know, I want it to have its a vision look to it. But anyway, I, lo I love your rights and esque stuff. 
Thank lot. you. So well, just always, my opinion. I, I would look at Wrightson and guys like Wrightson, Barry Smith, Frazetta. Frazetta, I don't probably really shouldn't count because he did a little bit of comic work, but not really a great mm -hmm. deal. Mm -hmm. um, but he was also a big influence. But, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, the stuff that was hot at that time was not really the superhero stuff. It was the monster stuff. It was the fantasy stuff. Yes. You know, Lord of the Rings. Everybody was doing artist portfolios and things like that. That was yeah. like, yeah. you know, so I always sort of wanted to fashion myself after being not a comic book artist, but an illustrator, right? And I always looked at Wrightson and Barry Smith and Kluda <clears throat> and Frazetta. Those guys were illustrators that just happened to be drawing comics once in a while. And that's kind of how mm -hmm. I sort of patterned my style. And so when I do fantasy stuff, when I do horror stuff or monster stuff, I guess I should say, that comes out because it seems to me there's a certain level of um, freedom and detail that you can put into a, a monster story or fantasy story that you're a little bit more restricted when you're doing a superhero book, you know? Yeah. Uh, David, yeah, Finch, yeah. David Finch seems to be able to sidestep that because no matter what he's drawing, there's always heavy shadows and a lot of detail, you know? Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't look at it that way. It's like, if I'm drawing Superman, I'm not going to draw him with tons of shadow on him, you know, like you mm -hmm. would Batman. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. therefore you have more of an open style, you know, like, you know, Adam or, any number of guys and sure, sure. that's sort of you know that that's kind of the approach I take I mean I would put them in shadow when I had to for thematic purposes or if the actual practical lighting called for it but I'm not gonna mm -hmm. if Superman's out flying through the sky in the middle of the day I'm not gonna put heavy shadows on him you know right whereas right. if you're doing a monster book 90% of the book it's it's usually at night you know, so you have all these shadows or usually someplace with gnarled trees or, you know, weird castles and things you can really sort of go wild with. Mm -hmm. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, you, I don't feel that sort of same kind of illustrative freedom when I'm working on uh, superhero books. So I kind of Understood. approach it differently. Good call. The end. <laughs> we got uh I'll, somebody I'll, I'll jump in, in i'll jump in with some uh input from chat um the first one here uh from youtube uh someone is asking about your time at solson or solson comics who uh someone is asking if you worked with uh solson the imprint put together by uh it was an imprint but uh sol brodsky no, no. All I've right. I never even heard of it. I, I thought it was a little strange, so I didn't know either. Um, the other one was uh, from that same person. He probably thinks I'm somebody else. That happens probably. A lot. Yeah. Uh, have you considered drawing uh, Count Chocula and Frankenberry for General Mills? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I would love to. They haven't really. You know, I was so jealous when um, was it Jim Lee, Terry Dodson, and. Um, um dave um dave johnson did those newer versions yeah. right i was like oh i wanted to do that so <laughs> bad and the reason this person is i it's probably kirk spencer or somebody but um i i did some uh sketches on one of my um virtual cons i did this okay over this past year of frankenberry and count chocula so that's i'm sure why that uh I haven't done Quisp yet, though, so maybe I'll do Quisp next. Although he's not part of that, you know, group of monsters, but you know, classic serial, of course. Oh yeah. Right. But I would. Hey, if they, if the General Mills said, "Hey, I absolutely, I'd do it." 
So, right. <laughs> Although I don't think that was really a serious question, but right. No, but yeah, <laughs> on an actual serious question. Um, and something that uh, I also have reference to, but uh, Aaron Humphreys, who is another uh, West Coast-based uh, Silverliner, uh, he actually lives up in Vancouver. Uh, he was asking about uh, your time on X-Men, uh, that being his first time coming across your artwork. I have a tragic story about this. Um, I guess when you're in the industry, as long as I've been you got a lot of tragic stories, (laughs) a couple of success stories, but mostly tragic. Um, I had done a book for um, DC called Tachyon Mm. and it was abysmal. Okay. Now I'm going to defend myself a little bit and say that I'm just going to blame the writer, but um, because I thought I did some really good storytelling and some, you know, it was kind of a next step for me after sludge artistically, but the book just tanked. And as a result, I got blacklisted over at DC, right? And um, I had never really had been able to make inroads back into Marvel after I originally left them to go to Malibu. And so this is one of the periods of time that I spoke about earlier. I was like three months where I had no work. And I was, you know, calling and begging and, you know, I, Scott Dunbeer over at Image threw me a couple bones to keep me alive. You know, um, I did a spawn pinup. Uh, courtesy of um, Bo, uh, Bo Smith, uh, you know, and got way overpaid for it, you know, because I was just literally had no work. And, um, but I kept sending stuff and I kept talking to people and kept making phone calls, you know, because we didn't have the internet back then. This would have been early 90s, well, mid 90s, excuse me, about 96, 97 ish. And, um, um, what was the question again? <laughs> uh, is, uh, just as asking about your uh, time on X-Men. Yes. Okay. Like, yeah. So I had sent some stuff. I had gone to San Diego and shown samples to uh, the two editors that were at, at X-Men at the time, which was um, Pete Franco was the, the, assistant, the associate editor. And um, oh, God, I can't think of the guy. But it was back when they were all in their black, you know, leather yeah. period. And so they, uh, they called me up and said, Hey, do you want to do an annual? And I said, well, yeah. And I said, are the X-Men actually in it? Because back then they were notorious for, they would call people to do annuals and whatever. And you go, Oh yeah, an X-Men annual. Then you find out that none of the characters are in the annual or one of them is and they're in street clothes the whole time, you know? And it's, and so I said, are they actually in it? And he goes, well, they're not in costume. I said, nah, forget it. And which took a lot of guts for me to do because I was unemployed, but I was like, I'm not going to keep going down this road of being a fill-in artist on bad books. So I thought, well, I just blew that, but at least I had my, you know, saved myself, my my integrity, right? Well, they called back a little bit later and said, hey, you know, we've got like three issues of fill-ins on X-Men. Would you like to do them? And I'm like, yeah. And they got me, uh, Mark Morales was going to ink, you know, who's obviously one of the top inkers, right? So I was like, holy crap, this is going to be awesome. So I did these three issues of X-Men and actually Danny Mickey stopped in and helped out a little bit too. And during that period of time, um, I also got this um, wizard special order comic x-men comic ultimate x-men comic that uh, jeff johns had written 
and Danny Mickey inked. So once again, I had another one of the top inkers in the field over me, right? So I did this work for about this four month period of time. And it was just, at the time, it was by far and away the best stuff I'd ever done. It looked great because I had great inking. And I remember I was talking to Pete Franco and he calls me up and he says to me, Aaron, we really like what you're doing. He goes, we are gonna groom you to be the next big X-Men artist, right? So those are the words that literally came out of his mouth. So you can imagine me just going, finally, you know, finally, you know, I've made it. I'm gonna be huge. I'm gonna be the next Jim Lee, blah, blah, blah. A week later, they both got fired. <laughs> and I was out on my ass, pardon the expression, right? So here I was about to be the next superstar X-Men artist. And then I went, and a week later, I was unemployed. And I, that's where I ended up going to um, CrossGen because Bart Sears had approached me and I had nothing going on, right? And so that's why I went and did CrossGen. But what I later found out, you'll find this kind of funny, is I was sitting next to Ethan Van Skyver at a Phoenix show years ago. And he was talking, telling the story about how he was the guy who got those two editors fired. And I'm like, what? And he said, he tells me the story that he wrote, you know, uh, some four letter word, snuck it in there because he was pissed at a, Mark Powers, sorry, was the editor and Pete Franco was the associate. Yeah. And he was pissed at Powers for something. I can't remember what it was. So he wrote this in there to get him fired. And he was celebrating the fact that he fired him. And they go, you screwed my career, you know? So I was like, <laughs> running over the table, you know, my hands are on his throat kind of thing. And he's like, ah, you did fine. You're all right. And, uh, but yeah, so that <laughs> I often, you know, sit around and think, wow, what would have happened right. if Ethan Van Skyver hadn't been, you know, done that and those guys hadn't got fired, where would I be right now? Where would but, you be now? Yeah, I might be right here. Who knows? But uh, I, I know I would have had a few more issues of X-Men under my belt anyway. So what what was CrossGen like, Aaron? I mean, did did there was a big I don't know whether the story was true, but the the idea of CrossGen was that they were going to return to the classic bullpen and everybody was going to move down to Florida and be in a, in the same room and it was going to be the classic style. And did all that actually happen? And if it did, how long did it last? It actually did. And, and the interesting, the interesting thing is um, Mark Alessi, the, the owner and the founder of, he was under the impression that there actually was a bullpen at Marvel and there really wasn't. That was, that was just kind of Stan Lee's sort of like imaginary sort of, you know, the workplace that didn't really exist. And so he told this story or someone told me, you know, that he'd heard it from Mark that, that he had gone to Stan Lee and said, Hey, we're recreating your model, you know? And Stan Lee was like, well, we never actually did that. That was just BS, you know? And so, and so now my dog's barking at the front door. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I apologize if you're my dog barking back there, but so we, he had, he had created this, environment that was really awesome because we had we had writers artists inkers colorists were all under the same roof in the same office right and we were we were in these little mm, I would say cubicles but yeah and um so it was awesome because the writers there was no editors the writers would get together and have story conferences and figure out what they were going to do and they sort of kept each other in check right 
And then I would go and meet with my writer, who was Tony Bedard at the time on uh, Mystic. And he'd tell me the story, we'd discuss it, you know, and his idea. Then he'd, you know, he'd come up with a plot based on our conversation and what he wanted to do and a little bit of what I wanted to do. So we were, you know, on the same page. And then I'd get the plot and then I'd pencil the thing. And then I'd walk, take my penciled page, walk over to Matt Ryan, who was inking me and say, this is what I'm going for here do this or don't do that or approach it this way or don't approach it that way. He would ink it. I would then take the ink page over to the colorist who is Will uh, Quintana and say, Will, this is what I'm going for here. Go this direction, go that direction, whatever. I mean, I didn't micromanage anybody, but I was able to tell them if I had a specific idea, you know, I want to go this color scheme because we're trying to get this point across or whatever. And it was just, it was amazing. Everybody that worked there, produced their best work of their careers, you know, and it was because we had that sort of work environment where everybody was on the same page. And if we weren't, we could sit down and talk it out and figure everything out. The problem with that is, is all you guys can probably guess is that it's not a very good economic model. Okay. Right. We all were getting paid salary. We were getting health benefits. We're getting all the stuff that you don't get as freelancers. Right. And so, um, and then, of course, they expanded too quickly, which is always the case with new startup publications. And pretty soon there was more money going out than was coming in and the whole thing blew up. But it lasted. I worked for them for. Well, about two years, just barely. And I remember telling my wife because we we lived in Oregon and um, which I hate, by the way, but we live in Oregon. And <laughs> so we were going to move to Florida, which she wasn't thrilled about. But I was like. Yeah, we got to go where the business is, right? So we moved to Florida and I said, if we get two years out of this, we'll be lucky. And that's about exactly what we got. Now it had been around a year, year and a half before I joined. So I was kind of like the second wave of talent that they brought in. Mm -hmm. um, but so I worked for them like six months before I moved to Florida because we had to sell our house and all that kind of stuff. And, and then I lived in Florida, worked there for a year where everything was going really well. And then it was that second year in Florida where things started to fall apart. And then I was, you know, calling Marvel, you know, while working at CrossGen because I knew things were going under. And so I was actually drawing Captain Marvel issue while I was finishing up my commitment at CrossGen at the same time. And so it was a brutal six months because I was actually working two jobs at the same time. And it was a lot of hours, long days, but, um, it was a great idea. It just, and it might've lasted if Mark hadn't been so aggressive, you know, and just kind of, cause all the books were selling in that 18,000 to 27,000 circulation, which was enough to sustain the books barely, but enough, you know, but you know, they just kept expanding and expanding and, and yeah, he was know, spending a lot of money leadership to support that many titles. Yeah. And, and do you think if we'd had the internet, the way it is now, the technology, the way it is now, and he had not chosen to bring everybody under the same roof, but to network everyone uh, like we're doing with Zoom and so on. Do you think things might have been different? Um, ultimately, no, because I think I think always the biggest problem everybody has when they start publishing is overexpansion. Okay, and that, that seems to be. It's kind of like when you start doing sequels and superhero movies, everybody for some god awful reason wants to throw every villain they can think of in the, the sequels. 
and realize that's not what made the first movie popular. You know, you don't have enough time or room to jam all these people in here. You're going to ruin the movie. And they continually do it. And it's the same thing with comic publishing. Every time there's a new company, they just pour into the market and the market does, it's not that big of a market, you know? So you have to sort of bide your time with a few titles here and there, but that's a long-term plan to make a little bit of money and everybody wants to make a lot of money very quickly. So, um, so I think he would have saved money up front, certainly, and probably would have got longer life out of it. But I think it probably would have ended up with the same fate. Because same way. Okay. He still would have ended up doing the same thing, which is expanding. And who knows, without the overhead, he might have expanded quicker. So. And then they bought like a Megacon. You remember they they purchased that, or did they? They had a big stake in it, and then they had a bunch of educational uh, programs that they were doing. They they spent a lot of money. I think they 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 spent like you were saying more money than was Covenant. Well, I think, you know, it's too bad Roland took off because the, you know, I think the same thing was partially to blame at Malibu is they tried, you you try to hit the industry with a bang and say, we're going to do all this stuff that no one else is doing. But if you do it before you get a certain amount of profit and you're, you're, you're just digging yourself into a hole and hoping you, you get out of it. And I guess the, whoever was doing their video games screwed them over. And that's the other thing when you're dealing with that big of a, a project with that many different tentacles going out, you got to be really careful that the people you're working with are not going to screw you over. And that's kind of hard to know if you don't, you know, yeah. you just jump into, you know, this guy can do video games. Let's work with him. Well, you know, he might screw you over. And that apparently is what happened there. And so they spent a lot of money. Malibu did. And they initially had it because the image books, but, and, and their books launched well, but, you know, you got all that other stuff going outside too quickly and something goes wrong and then suddenly all that capital is gone and you've got nothing. And that's, you know, so I think it's a, it's a sad but, un, but a familiar story with uh, independent smaller publishers a lot of the time. Have you considered writing a tell-all book about the industry? <laughs> My stories aren't really that good. I mean, I, I'm not all that sociable because I'm sort of in a weird age bracket. Cause I should be, I should have broke in about the same time, um, you know, somebody like Art Adams did. Um, but I ended up breaking in at this, like Terry Dodson's a perfect example. I broke in at the same time Terry did and I am 10 years older than Terry. Okay, because I, where most people, you know, they had a clear vision. I'm gonna be a comic book artist or I'm gonna be an illustrator or whatever. And so they get out of high school, maybe they go to a couple of years of art college or whatever, and then they jump into the industry. I went to film school, I got, you know, and that was something I pursued for like six years and I hardly drew at all in those, that six years. So here I am at, you know, what was I, I finally got out of film school in 88. Okay, so I was 24 years old you know, where a normal person would have graduated college would have been 21. So I'm already three years past and I didn't take an art. I mean, I took a couple art classes to keep my hand in it, but I didn't really, that's not what I was studying. So here I am, you know, 24, pushing 25 years old, really haven't drawn seriously for seven years since my senior year in high school, trying to break into the art industry. And I sucked. And if I had, and it took me just years to get back, catch up to where I should have been if I'd been diligently pursuing it, you know, right out of high school. 
Um, so I do kind of regret that, although I had a blast at film school, I can't lie. But so the point I'm making is that, so I'm sort of in this weird age group where I, I should be, you know, I should have broke in with Art Adams in 84 or 85. Instead, I end up breaking in in 90, 91 with 92, 93 with Terry Dodson and those guys. So, and although I'm really good friends with Terry, most of that crowd is 10 years younger than me. So they don't really want to hang out with me. And then mm -hmm. the guys that like, you know, Art Adams, those guys are their own group because they broke in together and I wasn't part of that crowd. So I don't, I don't have, I don't have like a lot of parties that I went to and that type of stuff. So, I mean, I have some funny stories where I was, you know, mistook for Adam Hughes or whatever and dumb things like that, but I don't really have a lot of, um, you know, dirt that I could uh, <laughs> spill, you know, in a tell all book. In a lot of ways, I've always been sort of on the outside looking in. <laughs> so, and then I pursued friendships with people like Mike Plug and Walt Simonson and Bernie Wrightson and guys like that that I grew up admiring. So instead of like networking with people close to my own age and, in, in, you know, I'm networking with guys who were, you know, 15, 20 years my seniors and those are people I'm friends with, you know, so it's just, it's weird. <laughs> Ah, but have you ever had your portfolio reviewed by Neil Adams? Yes, I have. As have I. We'll have to, we'll talk about that over a beer sometime. Seriously. <laughs> that that was really weird. continuity in LA. So when I was out of film school and I start, thought I should start pursuing art again, he had opened up offices in LA and I actually went in and I was just like, <laughs> Neil Adams, I was just, freaking out and sitting across the desk as he's ripping me to shreds actually, oh yeah he was actually really nice about it but he was you know oh it was, it's brutal it's like the most brutal coach he could ever have yeah you know i mean he just he pulls no punches but i'll have to admit everything he said was true and it yeah. made me work harder and Absolutely. i became a better artist because he ripped me to shreds you know? Yeah, Mark Wade ripped me to shreds too when he was editing at uh, DC. So when I was trying to break into comics, so I've been mm -hmm. ripped by the best, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you grow. And that's the title of your book. So on 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 the chat, uh, I think Scott has just been uh, sitting still for too long because Scott Merrill on Facebook accused uh, our Scott of being a cardboard cutout. Oh, <laughs> he is a robot. My my good buddy Scott is watching. I'm I. We are friends. Yes, hello, uh, Scott Merrill. I yes, I I'm I'm here. I, I wanted to ask uh, the first of all. I know some folks need to bounce at about the midway point. It is the midway point. I don't know if you have comments, questions before you want to go. Um, but if you guys need to go, that is okay. Um, Brent, see Michael. Want to give that uh, opportunity, Aaron? I absolutely love Planet Hulk, and oh, thank you, beautiful work. So, thank you, thank you for giving that to the world. And... <laughs> <laughs> Only gave part of it, but uh, I do uh, thank you very much. It was, uh, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of, you know, because I look at Planet Hulk as being sort of like what Simonson did with Thor, you know, mm -hmm. it's just it was like a generational kind of story. Um, it was so perfect for the Hulk. And I was, um, Carlo Paglion, who was the artist on the Hulk at the time, um, was not able to keep up regularly. And so um, um, Mark Panisha, who also I knew from Malibu, called me up and said, hey, do you want to do 
like every other story arc with this guy because we're doing this big project and we don't think he can keep up. And I said, yeah, of course, the Hulk, of course. I didn't know, you know, that it was going to be so awesome when I started working on it. Um, but yeah, it was, and I, I remember calling up Danny Mickey because Matt Ryan, who my regular anchor was, he had been off working with somebody else and I couldn't get him. So I called up Danny and I was like, Danny, look, I'm doing this big Hulk project. I need someone really good to ink it. He's like, oh, I'm too busy, man. I'm like, dude, you got to do it. It's the Hulk. It's big. You got to do it. And so he's like, all right, I'll do it. And of course, he gave it to everybody in his studio except him. And I said, look, it, I don't care if you give it to your like underlings, because I know they're pretty, pretty much going to ink the same way you do. I said, but you ink the splash pages. He goes, okay, deal. So and then the, like, the last issue, I think he completely bailed. Uh, couldn't do it. Couldn't keep up. But um, San, uh, Sandu Floria inked it. And the first couple issues before that, or actually I think it was the last story arc that Danny bailed on. And so the first couple issues, I was like, Sandu wasn't getting it. And I would talk to him and said, do this, do this. By the last issue where the Hulk actually fought the emperor, it was like all the good stuff, just mm -hmm. nailed it. It's a great looking issue. So we were able to kind of work the kinks out. So that by the time that, once Danny was gone, and then by the time that big finale, at least my finale um, on it, uh, it, uh, it looked really, really nice, but I appreciate you saying that. It's just, I was just really, it was one of those things I just kind of lucked into and was very fortunate to be a part of. Well, we got pretty lucky too, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so I wanted to ask for, to the veterans, the seasoned veterans that have been part of the big wigs and so forth, talk about, you've, you've, you've kind of touched on the good and the bad. Talk about that a little more. What, what is, what was great about I mean, really, like the heyday, and then what was what was not great about the heyday, and what do you see is the future of the big two, and then and then maybe the comics industry in the in the indies. I mean, I know AT and T has hinted that DC's future is questionable. Nobody really knows, but what do, what do you think? Um, and I'm that's that's Dean, Tommy, Aaron, Key, the guys that have have been there been there and seen it did, did that question make sense yeah well yes. it's, it's it's you got two different subjects there what was it yeah. like and then what do i think is going to happen yeah. um the good and the bad i mean i i broke in at the boom or the end of the tail end of the boom so i never i got a couple of royalty checks that were surprisingly good but nothing like you know the legendary stuff you you hear about and they were hiring just warm bodies at the time and so i was lucky because like i said i, I wasn't very good i really wasn't i was several years behind where I should have been, like, you know, I talked about earlier and several years before I was actually professional. Um, so I got, I, I was able to break in simply because of the amount of work that was available and I was a warm body and I was there, but it was exciting because it was the first time I'd gone to Marvel, you know what I mean? And I, I, I got in really good with the, uh, the receptionist and she would just buzz me in without an appointment. And there's people sitting in the, you know, in the lobby waiting to get in and I'd come in and cause I would make trips back to New York like every six months. And then I would stay for a week and, you know, bang on the door and that kind of thing. So she would just start. And I, you know, I would always go up and talk to her just a ton while I was there waiting to get in. Cause the first couple of times I went, I had an appointment, right? After that, she knew me and then she just like would buzz me in. And then I would just go wander around and see whose door was open. I mean, these are the kind of stories you hear people tell, right? But I was actually doing it. I remember, I remember one time I had done some work for Terry Cavanaugh. He was the first guy I did a Marvel Comics Presents story for him. And I went in there and I, like I said, I had no 
appointment or anything, but his door was open. So I kind of sat out in the hall. He was on the phone. So I sat out in the hall in a chair right across from his door and just sat there waiting for him to get off the phone so I could go in and bug him, right? <laughs> well, he's talking. He looks up and sees me and looks away. He looks up. I'm still there. sees me. He finally like shuts the door. <laughs> oh. That guy's but, waiting on me. I continued to, you know, plug away and, you know, but just walking around the offices, it was just cool. You know, you're kind of like, oh, it's Marvel Comics. Here I am. You know, DC was much more uptight than Marvel was at that time. So it was really, you couldn't sneak in to DC. It was very still sort of corporate. And so someone actually had to let you in. And so it wasn't as much fun, but Marvel was, uh, it was a riot because I was, so. It, you know, because we grow, you grow up reading that stuff, and you just dream about that possibility of actually being there someday, you know, and there I was, uh, scrounging for work, but, you know, people would let you in, you'd sit in and talk, and blah, 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 they wouldn't necessarily give you work, but you were hanging out, you know, in the Marvel offices, and um, one time I was there when I was working on What Though, which was a the humor book, the Marvel, the parody book, and that was the only stuff I'd done from at the time, I hadn't done any superhero work or anything like that. So I'm working on this Forbish Man story, right? On a uh, drafting table in the middle of, the offices were like a, all on, the, on the, the edges of the building. And then in the center, they had some drafting tables and stuff. And so I'm sitting there working on this what the page, right? And then right just behind me to the left on another drafting table was Tom Rainey. And he was just breaking in, but he was working on X-Men, right? So he's doing this working on this double page X-Men thing for like Onslaught or something. And it was just really cool, you know, and I was working on this really stupid thing, right? <laughs> and everybody would, they would walk by and they'd look at, you know, the editors and assistant editors, they'd look at Tom's and they'd go, oh man, that's really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Blah, blah. Then they'd walk by and look over my shoulder and yeah. then just keep going. <laughs> so it was like terribly humiliating, but it was still, you know, it was still, it was really exciting at that period of time trying to break in. And it seemed like the industry was just exploding and things were going to be great, but um to jump in and answer the second part and then I'll shut up. Um, I, I think AT&T is destroying DC. I think, I think it's, uh, I think the writing's on the wall. I honestly would not be surprised if that story that came out recently where they're saying that, you know, fans, well, that, that's not an accurate statement. I think it's, it's Robert Kirkman. And I think Steve Jeppe is the other guy that's involved in trying, at least that's what I've heard. Um, of buying DC and what they would be doing is actually licensing the comic book publishing branch because they wouldn't be gaining the rights to the characters you know Warner Brothers would still own the characters but they would just take over the comic publishing you know whoever would jump in and do that and I, I don't think that's I don't think that's unrealistic that that's going to happen at all and I think what's going on at Marvel in terms of subject matter and I'm not going to get all political on everybody but in terms of what they're doing, subject matter with their titles, they're just destroying their books and they're destroying their audience. Uh, so I can't imagine that they're gonna continue doing what they're doing uh, for much longer because they're just, you know, they're hemorrhaging other than a couple books. And someone had told, a writer told me this about four years ago and I thought it was really insightful. And now it seems to be coming true. He goes, he goes you just wait. He goes, before Marvel, he says, Disney is not going to continue to publish comics. He goes, don't be surprised if they take these comics and license them out to smaller publishers to do the books. 
because they don't care about the books. They care about the intellectual properties and they don't care about comics. There's not enough money in comics anyway. And so that wouldn't surprise me if something like that happened. But what alarms me most is this move towards the digital market. Because if that, if they, if DC goes all digital and that's their plan and then Marvel follows suit, what's going to happen to all the comic shops and all the outlets for print media, you know? So it may fall on the shoulders of independent publishers like, you know, like most of us are to a certain degree here. So there you go. I'm sure someone has an opinion. <laughs> good, good answer. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna take it uh, if if you don't mind and do a part one and part two. Part one of the question: What was cool about breaking in in the '90s? That what was really cool? I can sum it up for you. It felt like a cottage industry still because it's pre Hollywood. Yeah. So you know, it's way before Iron Man breaks big. I mean, this is this is like the biggest thing is the crow. Okay, that's it. It's, it's even pre-Blade, you know, there's no Blade, there's just the crow, and that's it. And then you've got your Donner Superman films that were big, you know, and then, but it's just after 1989 Batman. So there is a Hollywood presence, but it's nothing like what happened after Batman. So what you've got is a still a cottage industry of true fans, and we loved comic books, number one. That was it. And it wasn't driven as much by this you know success meant you were doing a comic book that i mean you want to make money you want to make a living doing it but the page rates were like like aaron said i mean you're like wow 135 dollars a page yes you know and um the fun, crazy money at times yeah it was it was it was the creative fun of being around people who loved the material the way you did and being able to work in that field and and do the work and go to cons and personally meet the people travel to new york walk through marvel and dc and see all the legendary characters you know up on the wall dc had this sculpture of superman breaking out of the wall you know uh i'll never forget that you know and uh catwoman at the time the, the hot version of catwoman was uh of course, from the 89, I mean, from uh, Batman Returns. So there was, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer uh, lookalike sculpture in the conference room at DC. Uh, but it, it was just, there was a magic to it because it was still uh, sort of a side industry. And, and it, was, it was an insider type of thing. And anything was possible. The other, the other creative fire behind the comic book industry at the time it was about whatever you wanted to do that you thought was cool uh i've quoted this before to some of you guys but forgive me for repeating it but one thing todd mcfarland said in an interview one time that never that always stuck with me was you know he didn't design a spawn because it was practical or because oh they could make a a, a live action film version of him later or whatever. it was like did it look cool? Yeah. You know, did, did the costume look cool? Did it look cool to have floating chains everywhere and an impossible cape that was 40 feet long that he couldn't really fight in that cape, man, none of that mattered. Right. It was, there was, there was no editorial limitations on, it felt like anything goes literally anything, but whatever you want to draw, go for it. Anybody with a pencil, Hey, come here, sit down. You can draw Am I over-exaggerating it, Aaron, or was that kind of the feel at the time? <laughs> that was exactly it. 
Yes. I mean, there's, there's guys that never would have got hired in a million years if if the Me. situation hadn't been that. <laughs> Me. <laughs> Me. You know, if the situation hadn't been what it was, you know. Right. Uh, they, would just, they had so many books and they needed people sitting there doing yeah. them that could actually do them in time. You know, you, you yeah, had, yeah, exactly. You, you had to be able to, to do it, but they, you know, they, any, anybody that can hold a pencil that can draw a face, you know, you, you, you were, got a gig. Work, no. yeah, as long the as you can get the work done because people were the, buying the stuff. It was, oh, yeah. it was fun. It, it was a fun time. That, so, so apart from the it. fun, and the feeling of an insider college industry, a club, if you will, that, that we all were a part of. And it was, it, it had just a limitless feel to it. Now, the second part of the question was, you know, where's it going? Sadly, uh, you know, the business side, I think Aaron's encapsulated that and summarized it quite well. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to go more to the conceptual side. Here's what's killing it. Calculation. Calculation is the death of creativity. It doesn't matter whether it's political calculation, whether you're targeting a demographic, whether you are, you know, taking some sort of uh, uh, test market to see what color do the kids like these days? Are they into yellow more into blue? Let's make the let's make the cape yellow. You know, it's there's too much calculation, and I think part of that is the reason the double-edged sword of the huge success of the post Marvel post Iron Man. Marvel Cinematic U. All of a sudden, you've got incredible, crazy money flowing because of comic books. So everybody wants to come in and get a piece of that, which makes sense. But again, people with people, you know, suits want to calculate stuff. Well, how can we guarantee that our investment, you're going to get ROI, you know, return on investment? Well, you can't. That's the beauty of art. You can't calculate ROI. It's a risk. All of it is a risk. You're going out into this world and you're sharing something that's genuine from the heart, right? If you're sharing something genuine from the heart, you're an artist, you're a writer, you're, you're a penciler, inker, colorist, whatever. If it's genuine, that connects with people. There's too much calculation nowadays. It's not connecting with anyone. They're making a huge mistake. And I think it may be to those of us who are of this opinion of the independent renaissance as i like to look at it it's to our benefit to take advantage of their short-sightedness uh in that respect they don't understand that calculation kills creativity so analysis there's, there's definitely there's definitely an opening in the market workplace right now for good product and um just to kind of springboard off what you were saying dean is i I'm, I've been reading um, the uh, history of the Marvel comics, the untold story by Sean Howe. I don't know if you guys have, seen, have read that book, but it's really interesting. And, and one of the things they were doing in the seventies with uh, when Roy Thomas sort of took over an editor in chief and, you know, Stan headed to LA um, is they, I mean, they, they admittedly like, we had no idea what would sell, you know, we were lost at that point. The industry was going to implode by 1980. You know, they just, <laughs> Kids weren't buying superheroes and stuff. So they just, well, let's try, let's get the license for Conan. Maybe that'll work. And let's, let's create some monster characters. There seemed to be some interest in that. And let's throw those out there. And 
you know, they were letting like Jim Starlin and, and you know, Englehart were just like, you know, and Steve Gerber. And although Gerber apparently wasn't a big druggie, I know Englehart and Starlin were, you know, they're dropping acid every night and going, <laughs> and going nuts and writing, you know, the weird stuff that was going on in Captain Marvel and Warlock. And, you know, Steve was doing his Avengers thing and there was all this kind of weird stuff going on. And they were just kind of like, hey, the attitude was, if it sells, keep doing it. If it fails, you're fired, you know? And it was, that was just kind of, that was it, you know? It's like, there wasn't a lot of editorial direction because they didn't know, and no one really knows. Just because Iron Man, like you said, was a huge success. Was it a huge success because it's Iron Man or was it a huge success because Robert Downey Jr. brought so much charm to the character and made it what it was? I and so, so, you yeah. know, when you start trying to, you know, encapsulate, this little formula for success you're nine times out of ten are going to fail and uh so you know there's no obviously there's no guarantees and it's a hard industry it's a tough industry because we have such a limited amount of people that actually you know finite audience it's not like a movie audience you know comic book readers you're not going to see a lot of change and growth you know you've got whatever it is half a million readers two hundred fifty thousand readers hundred and fifty thousand readers i don't even know what it is and that's, that's your audience. You've got to get enough of those guys to pick up your book. It's, it's less challenging when you're self-publishing because you don't have the overhead and you don't have the wholesaler, you know, you're, you can sell directly to the fans, but you also have to get the word out. There's no advertising. You're your own, you know, so how many people can you reach and how many people can you convince that they should get this book? And so, I mean, there's, there's challenges obviously, but I think in terms of creativity, that's where you're, that's where you're going to find the most diverse and interesting things going on right now is because there's a lot of, they're not just new people trying to break into the industry. There's a lot of pros that are doing it as well uh, because they're disillusioned by what they're the corporate, you know, entity that comics has become and how it's sort of controlling the creative uh, impulses. Yes. It, it, it got, it got too corporate. It got too calculated and, uh, what the one optimistic uh, opportunity I think we have is that we have a worldwide audience now, you know, being broadcast digitally as we are, where that wasn't possible before. We, we had gatekeepers, right? And they controlled, you know, what went out and how many people. There are no gatekeepers now. Whoever's listening to this right now, they might tell their friends, you know, oh, this is this is going to be a cool, you know, company is coming out with cool books. But the idea of the genuine creative concept that's going to resonate with the reader, no calculation. Do you think it's cool? If right. you think it's yeah. cool, yeah. then they will think it's cool, right? If they don't, fine, you move on to the next <laughs> thing, but it's real. It's well, real. Well, that's the thing that uh, even Stan Lee said in interviews is I just wrote what well, I thought was cool. And if I think it's cool, someone has to like it. Right. <laughs> right. Someone must think like me out there. There must <laughs> I think that's yeah. one of the things that um, made me say yes when Roland asked me to jump on was when I, when I heard how they source books is, is finds a writer like, hey, what story do you want to write? Find an artist. Hey, what story do you want to draw? Great, you guys link up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys are buddies. Yeah, Aaron, um, your your comment about the pros just doing their own thing too is awesome. And and it, it it's tough, like like with anything now, 
is 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 if you don't have a following, you got to get that following. You got to build your fan base, and if you aren't a character, you know, like a personality, it's 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 a little it's tough. But you you can do it. It's possible. Um, if you do, you know, if you are the pro moving over to the the indie world, I think you got a little bit of an advantage, which is fine, you know, great. But um, what advice do you have for? Um, I mean, let's say like a guy like me, like I'm. I'm trying to break into the world here. I have, I, I have no bona fides. I got, I got nothing. What, what's, what's your advice? Well, you know, the, the obvious advice is don't get into comics. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Let's just ignore that. I don't want that. Uh, beyond <laughs> other, that, other than beyond that. that. Well, I mean, being a, the independent market is I'm still exploring because I, I tried to launch garbage man, not even as an original project, just the reprint trade paperback with the new material that I'm now getting published through somebody else. Um, and it didn't, it didn't go over. And what I realized was that I just didn't have the exposure, yeah. you know, because you're sitting there thinking before you launch it, right. You go, well, let's see when garbage man came out, it didn't sell well, but it sold 19,000 copies. Mm-hmm. So there's 19,000 people out there that have heard of garbage man. Certainly I can get 1500 of those people to buy uh, that's not that easy and then you start to realize that this what we're doing right here is such an integral part of selling your book that and and i've talked to you know over the course of the last year and a half as i'm preparing to launch something it's like talking to guys who are you know getting it right that are doing it right now granted there's guys that um like Sean Gordon that, or um, yeah, Sean Gordon Murphy. Who's Sean Gordon Murphy. It's Murphy. Yes. Yeah. He's doing his own book and he, you know, you know, he's going to do over a hundred thousand dollars in the indie market. Cause he just came off doing this great big popular Batman white knight thing. Right. So he's, he's rolling, he's hot. So that's not a concern. He doesn't have to have an internet show, you know, three times a week to get people to say, Oh, I know who that guy is. Um, but then you take, you know, just, your average comic pro like myself or some guy trying to break in and, and, and uh, do something new, you've got to have exposure. I mean, that's everything. It's like, we all suddenly have to be Stan Lee, you know, we have to get out there and start marketing our books and our ideas. And I, the one thing I, I've been trying to kind of wrap my head around is that I think there's, there's a lot of independent stuff going on or trying to go on. It seems to me that, we'd be better served sort of under a similar umbrella rather than everybody off on their own. So we could kind of benefit off everybody's self-promotion could benefit everybody else kind of thing. I don't really know exactly how to organize that or what that would look like yet, but, and I also think that the, I think the price point per comic is too high for a long-term goal, but it's the necessity right now when you're only getting five or 600 people buying your book, or even if, getting 1500 people buying your book in order to get just to get a page rate you know i guess you have to sell it for 25 bucks and people are willing to do that right now i think because there's a certain amount of novelty attached to it and there's probably a certain amount of collectability to these books because there's such low print run but i don't know that five years from now or 10 years from now if we can still keep the industry going if that's a model that it's going to have to change in some way shape or form so that we can get product out to people more or less expensive, more affordable. Um, Cause right now it's just a couple of projects here and there. And 
that's fine. But the more and more we try to do this, because we really have to, because Marlin DC is just, I don't think we can count on them unless right. something just miraculous happens. Um, we're, the, we're kind of tasks, tasked with the idea of recreating the, the comics industry ourselves. <clears throat> so there's some stuff that has to be answered. But to, to answer your question, I think promotion is the number one thing, visibility. Mm -hmm. Whether that's you're doing your own show, you're on YouTube, you're on Facebook all the time. You've got, that's number one. Because the more people know the name of your product, even if it's not out yet, you know, right. it's like garbage, man. I've been talking about it for two years. So yeah. when Dark Horse... Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> we can edit that out. Well, yeah, that's post-production. Yeah, yeah. Tim, yeah. yeah. cut that. Cut that. Right, right yeah. now we're sending people to people's houses with the little uh, men in black thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it comes out um, by the publisher, now that you all know who it is, uh, when it comes out, it shouldn't be a big mystery or as big of a mystery, right? Because I'm talking about it all the yeah. time. And I've been talking about it for a year and a half. But I don't think anybody wants to sit around. Like I got a project that I just finished the script for. It's a monster Western superhero type thing. Total genre mashup. But it's like, do I want to sit around and talk about it for a year and a half before I launch it to get myself the best chance to, you know, that people will be ready for it when it comes out. I mean, so there's, there's all those kind of things you have to balance. Like when is enough promotion enough before I can actually take the chance and launch yeah. this and hope it succeeds um, as opposed to jumping in too early or waiting too long. You know, it's like Dean said, I mean, this is, we're guessing, you know, you're guessing if your product's <laughs> going to sell, you're guessing if, if you're going to reach enough people, if some, something's going to resonate with it, that they're going to tell their friends and they're all going to order it, you know? That's so good. I don't know what my advice is. I, you know, the obvious thing is you pursue your passions and that way, if it doesn't work out, at least you've done something that you're happy with. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because there's, you Trust, can't, you cannot. Trust your instincts. Success. You just can't. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the thing I struggle with is, I mean, this is Scott Wakefield uh, is just like that feeling of being despondent. Like when you see, my, my constant rant and Rory knows about it. If I was some sexy muscle dude or like Tim or, uh, <laughs> or some hot woman that does nothing but post pictures of herself, I'd have a hundred thousand followers on, on Instagram. But when you try to curate a, a great post, a thing, you know, a, a great, an image, uh, and you get like seven likes, it's disheartening sometimes. And, but keep plugging yeah. along, keep plugging like, along. Don't give up. It's Don't tough. give it's up because you, hey, you so let me put it in perspective for you. I have fifty one hundred followers on uh, Twitter. Okay, yeah. I know artists that I don't even know what they've ever worked on that have like twenty thousand followers, yeah. and I'm sitting here going, what? "I drew Planet Hulk. I did Ms. Marvel. I did. How come I can't get more than five thousand followers yeah. on Twitter?" And then you think maybe I'll get one percent of those five thousand to buy my book. It's like right. I gotta have more followers, but I can't. I can't figure out how to get them. I keep posting art, and a couple more people will follow. Yeah. By the time I'm eighty, I'll have twenty thousand followers. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's. I don't. You know, I just read. I just read. A, I'm. Um, I'm a motorcycle nut, and I get Iron and Air magazine. So if Iron and Air, you're listening, this is your your free plug. Um, Iron and Air magazine. It's a great quality. It's a quarterly. It's a nice like 90 page magazine and um this last one was the their um photo specials mostly f 
photographs in there. It was kind of curated by one of their photographers and he talked about it. You know, at the end of the day, uh, success might not be your, your bank account. Um, but, but if you look back at what you've created and what you've done, what a life now that's, that's tough. (laughs) The struggle, the daily grind is tough. Um, and to not lose heart is tough, but to be able to create. And then like you guys are saying, you, Dean, Tommy, um, this kind of Renaissance that's coming is it's exciting. And to be a part of that, to be creating new things and, and throw it out there. And if it stinks, okay. Okay. Don't, don't take it personally. It wasn't, wasn't meant to be, you know, I'm, 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 I'm it's hard not hoping. to take it personal. It is. Yeah, it, it, it yeah. really is. But I, I'm really kind of hoping that, you know, we've all been, you know, stuck in the house for the past year. You know, everybody is just ready, bursting at the seams to go do stuff. Whenever we get these shows back up and running, yeah, and we're all going to have books ready to go. Yeah. You know, I think, yeah. I think let's yeah. hope that we all, you know, it's, it's get a- that get that train going you know it's, it's been a good year and a bit for um productivity but yeah. uh as far as where silverline was in terms of, like our growth vector in relation to when uh the backstreet boys reunion tour as we call it uh because the algorithm does not like the actual name <laughs> hit and put us all in our homes um it's kind of like just a hamstring to actual growth at conventions because if you're independent yeah. you're not necessarily showing up in bookstores you're somewhere in aisle and you have to like just warm your way in between the guy who was working on x-men at the time and some other person and trying to just throw your book at people as they walk by well you know you got to get good at that yeah. you've got to do it i mean it's it's the yeah. i always like doing that at the shows you know i'm i was always good at talking to, to yep. whoever was walking by even if they were ignoring me still get them <laughs> to stop and just uh you know it's it's Oh, when you have some good stuff on the table and you can go well look this is really yeah. good and they go oh it is good and then you talk to them but you know you got to get uh we got to get these shows going again and then get people on the you know if we're selling the books through the the, the kickstarter store mm-hmm. they don't like for you to call it a store right <laughs> but you know we're calling it a store um you know i i, I really think uh, let's 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 keep our fingers crossed that we can get all the shows back up and going because uh, it'll, it'll, I think it'll help us all. Yeah. And uh, the the trend toward analog, again, is good, mm-hmm. and I, I I'm happy about it. Like, again, the in the power sports industry, motorcycles and quads and side by sides and RVs and kayaks. I know it's not power sports, but the, mm-hmm. the outdoor go do yeah. stuff industry is is sure. on the rise, and oh, it's yeah. awesome. Uh-huh. I did. You, you guys know I'm a, I'm a big mountain bike rider yeah. guy. I've got a bike, you know, on order now that uh, I put it in last year for a new bike to upgrade my bike, and yeah. and, and it's not going to be here until the end of the year. That's how yeah. you know. That's how far out the outdoor sports things. People are ready to go. And oh, yeah. there's some so weird. And there is some weird connection because this this was a, a niche industry, and yeah. it kind of tends right again and. Power sports and outdoor sports were kind of an Asian street and kind mm-hmm. of that way again. And in the, those places, it really flourishes. Because when skate, after skateboarding peaked in popularity in the late 90s, it just died out in the mid-2000s. Yeah, yeah. And only now people were getting their kids and skateboarding again. Yeah. yeah, I was out at Mount Hood snowboarding uh, recently. And the amount of other comic writers and artists I met in line for the lift. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I was like, are we just all in the same boat? Like, yeah, but... What are we doing here? All in the same town. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. That is yeah, so I... true. 
I and I think too, um, Aaron, you mentioned it too, or, or uh, how it works. How do you how do you curate getting us all to work together and lift the indie the indie industry? How do we do that? I'm I don't know, but we need to. Uh, and it, and I, I Silverline, I you know I always mention we reach out if you're out there creating and you want us to mention your name. I know we're not a we're not a, any powerhouse, but we're going to keep talking about each other and we've got to do it. We've got to, and big names out there, you know, we'd love mention us, mention the little guys. And if you've got a, if you're the person with 200,000 followers, um, that's the key. Let's, let's keep, let's keep promoting. Let's not. That's uh, we got uh, some, we got some updates in chat. Okay. So I'm going to go through those real quick. Uh, uh, Roland had mentioned that uh, Silverline acts like an umbrella, like Aaron was saying, and I think we're going to see a lot more companies of that sort where it's not necessarily a universe, it's a uh, publication collective. Yeah. Where, yeah. <laughs> where uh, it's, we were more, Scott and I are working on some of our projects, historical fiction, yeah. uh, his little more, well, science fiction on both lines, like right. a little bit. Um and if we were outside of Silverline, we'd both be trying to just shell ourselves out on Twitter as much as we can. But because we have a shared collective here, we can try to cannibalize each other's audience a little bit. I think yeah, of course. the more people that get together and do that, the better. But we can't we can't we couldn't be in the same universe. I mean you you wouldn't be in a superhero universe and I right. wouldn't be in your um like real kind of historical fiction right. where steam patriots is fantastical but until we do the time until we do the uh the yeah. time jump arc yeah <laughs> when the portal it's coming opens. yeah <laughs> um See, i think that's i think that's potentially problematic as well because i think based on what i've seen mm. you know over the not only my life as a comic reader but then as working in the industry people fans love connected universes they love yeah. something mm-hmm. bigger than themselves and they can kind of get lost in the minutia of all this stuff that's why you have marvel zombies or dc yeah. zombies whatever they're called and um that's the one thing that that i think is missing right now in this sort of independent market absolutely is everybody doing basically what we're doing is we're pitching we're, we're selling graphic novels self-contained yeah. stories which are good in terms just from being able to read a story and you know, be done with it. And then maybe there'll be more, maybe there won't be. Um, but I, I do think that your traditional comic book reader likes that sense of connectivity. How is, what, yeah. you know, how is Fantastic Four relating to Spider-Man or how, yeah. you know, you have the these different characters that, that maybe they're not crossing over every issue, but you know, they sort of exist in the same, you know, as Stan, Stan Lee said in this book I'm reading, I thought it was interesting. He was like, you know, unlike DC, where they would put Superman in Metropolis and Batman was in Gotham and Flash was in Central City or whatever, you know, there was kind of these made up towns that didn't, they weren't, but he said, we were, all of our characters were in New York City. Right. So yeah. how in yeah. the world could they not be running into each other yeah. once in a while, you know? And so when he started doing that, it became this novel thing that people really dug. They thought, this is really cool, you know? Yeah, that silver surfer may be in the fantastic four but he could eventually affect spider-man or he could eventually yeah. you know somebody else warlock or captain marvel right. and so i do like that and i i i'm not again i'm not sure how to solve that problem in, right. in the way this independent with this kickstarter or indiegogo 
platform, the way yeah. that, that we're doing things right now, how that can be solved. But I do think it's, it, it's we, important. It may be important to the longevity of it, unless people are just, this just becomes a new you know, the, comic just evolved to the point where it is just kind of separate graphic novels and people accept that and, and go well, with that. But yeah. I think I, I you're, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, Aaron, yes. you're you're perfectly uh, you are 100 correct, and I think um, Marvel with the movies did it really well, bringing mm-hmm. everybody in. And yeah, Tim, I you can talk to like there there is going to be a core of Silverline titles that, that are together. Yeah, we have our, our our I don't even know what we're calling the universe, just New Orleans. But I I am a huge X Men nerd, and the weird <laughs> stuff they do in there to get away with things. If we were to do a volume two, and there was a time portal in colonial America that <laughs> jumped into <laughs> World War Two England, you know I oh, would be down. So good, oh, yeah. so good. Yeah, Silverline. Yeah, Silverline will have its 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 universe of superheroes and uh, action heroes, yeah. uh, and and then the, some of the other uh, the stories that that just are under the Silverline umbrella. But you're right. It, it's seeing the world. What and I don't know where it fell apart because I my my comic book knowledge is uh, choppy. I feel like Marvel used to do a really good job of their continuity, and they would say they'd mention, oh, this is just like Spider-Man did. And they'd say with an asterisk, see, yeah. see such and such yeah, a book. Yeah. Box yeah. down there, see yep. Spider-Man. And then it, it, it flew apart. I, and I don't know at what point, and I could be wrong. I just, I mean, that's what X-Men. my- X-Men. Okay. X-Men. <laughs> fell apart with X-Men. Because X-Men, all of a sudden, it was like, how can Wolverine be in 10 books at the same time? And okay. they were yeah. doing this over here, and this over here, and this over He's here. Fast. Yeah. And then they decided yeah. to acknowledge that they're just a messed up universe. So we have Battle World, where you just see the fact that none of this makes sense, and that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, DC, in the oh. comics, DC was always more control the universe oriented, and Marvel was just like, hey, if it's cool, yeah, yeah. It's fun to have fun. Yeah. yeah. But, well, but they, what happened was, they obviously, they had less titles to worry about in the 60s and 70s, and yeah. it was easier to keep track of. But even then, you know, Stan said that <clears throat> if you look at, I think it's Avengers 16, where they had the new lineup, right? And it was Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver and Giant Man and the Wasp and Cap and Hawkeye. It was just like really a lame Avengers lineup. And <laughs> the reason was, <clears throat> is because, even this was 1966 you know when they did that it was like he goes it was too hard with just the eight titles they had it was too hard keeping Thor and um Iron Man and uh um the Hulk Hulk, you know whoever else was in the Avengers what they were doing in the Avengers in conjunction with what they were doing in their own book it was just like too much of a hassle so that's why they he pulled all the major characters out and put in the lame uh you know second second stringers yeah (laughs) right so they didn't have to worry about that sort of continuity yeah but also what happened in the 90s is when they started when um martin goodman sold off the company the marvel in the 70s right and then it just got sold and got sold and got sold and got sold and then became more and more corporate and pretty soon in the 90s what was happening was you know and terry stewart was in charge although he wasn't really in charge the you know Perlman and these other guys, Icon and all those guys were, they didn't care about 
anything except profit margin. Mm -hmm. And so they were making these guys put Wolverine in everything. They were making them do this oh, stuff yeah. that they didn't mm -hmm. want to do. Yeah, but they had they no were appearing choice. in books that they that they didn't have anything to do with, and they were right. It was like this book, Wolverine like, walks through. <laughs> There's Wolverine. Right. Well, it's like this book has to this book has to sell X amount of copies, or I'm yeah. in trouble. That's what an editor was yeah. faced with. So that he'd say, "Okay, we'll put Ghost Rider in there, Wolverine, and I'll make sure we'll sell X amount of copies, and I won't mm. get in trouble." Mm -hmm. So it was a totally different environment than it was in the '70s, where guys were just like. Well, let's see what you know. What if we make Warlock do this, you know, or let's Shang Chi, you know? And it was uh, just, it was it was more of a creative. Let's try some Howard the Duck. It was just like <laughs> let's try some interesting things and see what happens. Where in the '90s, it was like this has to sell this many copies or you're fired, you know. And you're like, what do you do? Well, you put Wolverine in it or Punisher, whoever's yeah. hot. <clears throat> and so you destroy that. You destroy the industry long term to get some short term capital gains that's going to make, you know, whatever mogul that happens to own Marvel at the time happy. Mm -hmm. And so it was very, you know, those guys were, they had no interest in comics. They had no idea what comics were. They were just interested in, in the spreadsheets and the bottom line. And, and the industry paid a great price for it. But, you know, that's what yeah. happened. These, these companies are great when they're small, but then they, anybody who owns a small company, their, their big dream is right to sell it for several millions of dollars and <laughs> yeah. retire, right? You're not thinking about what you're doing to the employees or the in, you know, the rest of the industry you may be a part of. It's just kind of like, and I think that's what everybody's mentality was. You know, Marvel and DC were independently owned companies and they just sold for <laughs> millions of dollars. And, you know, somebody was pretty happy with it. And then the rest of us that worked in the industry had to kind of ride the roller coaster of what that means when, that stuff becomes, like you said, from being a co cottage industry to just, you know, co these corporate giants controlling. Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And, and, and now Mickey Mouse uh, owns Marvel. Isn't that weird? Yeah. 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 We're going to get the uh, Mickey Mouse Heart of the Duck crossover. <laughs> so, so on the chats, um, Roland is trying to uh, guilt Aaron into do a cover for us. Um, <laughs> uh, Hyper Potato on YouTube uh, says, I bet Dean Zachary would draw a great Sergeant Rock. Oh wow! Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, someone else, or uh, the same person. I'll, I'm going to read this word for word because uh, I think it's kind of hilarious how they uh, qualify this. Uh, well, Garbage Man be a hardcover when this mystery publisher, who has totally not been mentioned or hinted at, puts it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a big. It's going to be a big book, right? It's not no, little. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold your breath for that. Um, although I don't really know, to be honest with you. Uh, my guess is that, you know, it's funny. Everybody's like, oh, I don't do a hardcover. It's too expensive. Well, it doesn't cost that much more to print a hardcover than it does a, a softcover. It really doesn't. But your price point for selling is much higher. And um, my guess would be that it's going to be a paperback. And, you know, if it blows up, maybe they go in and do a hardcover. But I, I don't know that for a fact, what they're planning on doing. Um, uh, it's a different It's a different market in the sense that, since it's a trade paperback, it's not, they're not publishing, you know, floppies and saying, okay, we're losing money on the floppies, but we're going to co collect them in a trade paperback and then sell that and break even. This is starting as a trade paperback, right? So their, their focus is as much on bookstores or booksellers as it is com the comic book market, right? So uh, that's one of the reasons why the book is, 
I mean, it's essentially done with it. I mean, it's still being put together in production, but I mean, everything's done, right? And, but it's not gonna come out till October, November because you have to have such a huge um, uh, leeway from when you solicit it to when it actually comes out from book publishers. Okay, the book publishing market is completely different than the comic market. And so they have to cater to the book publishing market. So there's a, <clears throat> there's a catalog that goes out to book buyers and then there's a catalog that goes to Diamond, right? And they're not the same thing. And so the book publishers get like eight months in advance whereas Diamond is three months in advance, right? For comic shops. So even though it'll be coming out at the same time, they have to be, they have to say, well, in order for this book to just be out by November, we have to have it solicited to the, the books, the book buyers by March, yeah. you know? So whereas, so it was just impossible when we cut this deal, it was impossible to like get it out in June or get it out in May because we came to this agreement last fall. Right, and they still had to work to be done on it to get the Batman stuff taken out and the new stuff put in. And I'm way ahead of schedule, but it, with that eight month lead time for the bookstores, there's just, you know, the earliest it can come out is at the end of 2021. So and that's kind of how it's, how it's gonna be. But I don't, to answer the question, I don't have any idea. I would guess it's just gonna be a paperback. Sure. Uh, Cause there's, it's not like it's, you know, this, mega selling property that they're like oh my gosh we got this you know let's maximize it by doing a really cool hardcover my guess is it's going to be a paperback because it'll be just cheaper hey aaron thank you for staying with us we're getting towards the end of the show here um if if everybody's okay with it i'm going to start we'll start our, our good nights and uh, we'll give you the last word, Aaron. I want you to plug what you've got going on. I know you got a um, you got a book on your site that's for sale mm-hmm. uh, of your artwork and so forth. So shamelessly plug, please. I will. So I will start the good nights, and then I'll, I'll wrap up at the very end. Again, my name is Scott Wakefield, and uh, Steam Patriots is coming out sometime soon. I'm co co writer, co creator with my good buddy Rory Boyle down there. And um, as always, folks out there, if you have um, something you want us to help promote, if you want to help promote our products and our books, we would love to help each other out. We, uh, we love indie, the indie world, and let's, uh, let's lend a hand where we can. Um, I'm going to go over to Dean and then down to Tommy and Rory and Tim. So, Dean, say goodnight. Good night, everybody. Dean Zachary signing off. Keep your eyes out for the upcoming Silver Blade enjoyed it all right uh tommy just uh look for me uh just punch in floor monte f-l-o-r-i-m-o-n-t-e mostly on facebook but you can find me elsewhere uh, or go to infernostudios.com and um you will you'll find me all right floor monte. <laughs> we'll find you thank yep. you rory go for it Rory Boyle here. I wish you all a good night. You can find me wherever you can find Scott. Uh, everything at Steam Patriots on the book and the gram. Because you live in his backyard. He's there. I live in his backyard. <laughs> Throw a snowball soon. <laughs> Tim, go for it. I am Tim TK. You can find me at Tim TK Writer on all the socials. Uh, I'm also on TikTok at Tim Doesn't TikTok. 
where I talk about the crossroads of punk rock and literature. I am also on Twitch at AgroBacon, where I'll be going live with some Destiny later tonight, and on the Silverline website with our craft series. Uh, and also, uh, someone t- brought it up, but Wolf Hunter coming out later. Yes. Later. Soon. <laughs> and your Soon. beard has been getting progressively shorter. Yeah. The, the beard the actually goes into the inks. <laughs> <laughs> Tim TK, our resident Renaissance man from uh, video games to literature. Thank you, Tim. (laughs) And before I forget, Daytona Beach Comic Con, thank you so much for supporting and sponsoring our live streams. And before I forget, we have a live stream on Sunday night as well. That is 9 to 11 p.m. And Mr. Roland Man is here. He has graced us again. I think he might be able to tease... What's coming up Sunday night? Go for it, Roland. It's more than a tease. Right. Uh, quick, quick reminder that, uh, that 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 me and Aaron Humphreys will be on uh, with uh, OCD uh, drinking with gas tomorrow night. Uh, Sunday night, we are going to continue our Silverline guest theme week, and gracing us Sunday night will be none other than Drumroll, please. There you go. Alex Saviuk, who oh. many know for for drawing Spider-Man for a long, long time. So uh, we are looking forward to uh, chatting with Alex, much like the Whammers did here with uh, with Aaron. Aaron, uh, can I can I reach out to you and invite you to hang out with us again sometime? Absolutely. This has oh, been fun. I really enjoyed talking with you guys. Good. Oh, you awesome. should see some of the other stuff that we talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you may change um, your mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, the only thing I've got that I can plug is this yeah. sketchbook, which is on my um, website. Mm. But I am on Facebook at Aaron Lopresti. I'm at Twitter at Aaron Lopresti. I am on MeWe at Aaron Lopresti. I'm on Instagram at Aaron Lopresti. You can spell my name. You can find me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> this is a hardcover. It has a spine. Self-published. Nice. There's my little logo right yep. there. Cold Crocodile Woo-hoo! Press. And um, 64 pages of goodness. Um, I've got some projects coming up, but they're not going to see fruition probably until the first of the summer. Um, I'm actually sadly going in for rotator cuff surgery next Ooh. week. So I'm going to be I'm not drawing Ooh. for a month. So I'm, that's going to be, I broke my arm when I was a sophomore in high school. And that's the last time. And you're just now getting it fixed. So I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, little, a little distressed about wow. that, but uh, yeah. So that it's an injury that's been, uh, been so you- bugging me for years. And I doctor's like, dude, if you don't get this thing fixed, you're going to end up with a shoulder replacement. I'm like, okay, that sounds worse. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. So you're going to be going, going on a blog tour, on a, on a video tour while you're uh, out with your arm, right? You're gonna That's all I'm going to do is promo, promo, yeah. promo, because I can't do anything else. So I'll say, yeah, you're, Excellent. You, you've been drawing handicap for so long that when you get it back, it's just going to be so much better. <laughs> just think how fast you're Twice the speed. <laughs> That's right. Man, it's amazing. Aaron, it has been an honor. Your fastball is going to be amazing. <laughs> yep, I've seen the movie that the, the documentary where the kid gets the the. the, <laughs> the <rest of> <laughs> what was that movie? I, I can't remember the title. Oh. Oh, well. Okay, okay, okay. Aaron, it has been an honor to have you here with us. Uh, thank you. Thank so you, guys. Much. I appreciate you having me. It was a, it was a real pleasure. Getting I to feel talk like we barely some old friends as well. We barely scratched the surface. We talked a lot about industry stuff. I wanted to talk. I, I had the idea that we'd get into craft 
Um, we'll save that for the next time you're available. And we would love to talk the, the, the craft and the, the work that goes into creation. Um, I always say that I'm surrounded by greatness. I'm just kind of just herding the cats here. And you guys have so much wisdom that I love to help impart to the world. To our viewers out there, thank you for joining us. If you are not watching this live, go ahead and comment still. We try our best to hop on and see comments and questions. Uh, it's a great opportunity for you to ask um, questions to, to us. We can get get the answers from the guys and from uh, from our other silver liners out there. Some of the folks had to head to bed. Uh, we get it. Uh, <laughs> Haley Brent, C. Michael, uh, Mickey, um, we, we love you all. Thank you for, for being part of the show. And thank you all for supporting Silverline. SilverlineComics.com. You can check out our titles there. Order those from Indie Planet. And um, keep an eye out for upcoming Kickstarters and all of our new titles as we keep making great stuff. That's all I have. And I'm going to say goodnight. Thanks. Thank good you. Night. And as always, make mine. Make mine. Thank you for listening to the Silverline Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We know we ramble sometimes, but we have fun. And after all, isn't that what comics are all about? We hope you'll follow us on all our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, LinkedIn, Reddit, MeWe, Gab, and whatever new thing pops up between now and the time you listen to us. Please like, follow, share, and remember, make mine Silverline.